What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, I'm Brian Sullivan in for Kelly Evans once again. And here's what's ahead. Are you ready for a more than 7% mortgage? They're on the way, if not here already. Bond yields spiking again. We're going to hear from somebody who says the Fed needs to slow down the speed of hikes. Let's talk oil. It is actually slightly higher, even as the White House keeps selling America's energy reserves. Are we on a collision course with OPEC as well? We're going to hear live from the president in moments. And trouble on the Mississippi. How ultra-low water levels may turn into another supply chain and maybe even energy crisis. There is a lot to do on this very busy Wednesday. We are going to get to it all. But first, let us begin, of course, with these markets. Just heard on halftime talking about the stock market being down as yields rose once again. I mean, it's not quite perfect synchronicity. But when we see yields pop, stocks almost inevitably go down. When yields hold steady or go down, we see stocks go up. Not 100% of the time, but that certainly has been the macro trend. Right now, we are seeing the NASDAQ and tech. We've had a nice rally last couple of days. Not today. NASDAQ down 1.1%. Now, there are winners, of course, out there. There are winners every day in any market. Netflix, the big winner right now, leading the S&P and the NASDAQ 100 Strong subscriber numbers and some decent guidance lifting that stock. It is up 13.8%. On the Dow, Travelers and Procter & Gamble leading the Dow on the back of strong earnings. Dow is down overall, but P&G and Travelers are indeed higher. By the way, interest rates, I mean, does it matter more to any group than housing? The home builders, they're moving lower as rates continue to rise. Pulte down 7%. Lennar, KB, and DR Horton also on the downside. Now, on the flip side of that, The oil services ETF, the OIH, it is moving higher with all but two components in the green. You've got Baker Hughes, you've got Liberty, Halliburton, many others. Those are the ones that are going to move it. The Vanek Oil Services ETF, the official name, that is up 3%. And your disaster du jour, really, it's not just today. It's been for the year. That is Carvana. Carvana, the car sales company, sinking 15%. That stock is down 93%. This year, I mean, you're down 93 percent. There's only a couple things that can happen. You're going to zero. You stay here forever or the stock rebounds. Not today. We're down 17 percent to a 15 dollar stock. All right. Let's talk about yields because we are now seeing decade highs all across the curve. The two year, 15 year peak, 10 year, 14 year high, 30 year, 11 year high. But it's not just the actual rates that are the issue. It is how fast these rates have gotten to where they are. Consider this. We were just 2.5% in the 10-year about three months ago. And it is not just here in America. It is the same situation in the U.K. and Europe. So what are the second and third derivative effects of this kind of super spike in rates? Joining us now is Ken Rogoff. He is professor of economics at Harvard, former chief economist at the uh, IMF, and somebody Ken, you and I had long, extensive conversations in 2008 and 2009 about sovereign debt, about Greece, about our Fed back then. So good to chat with you again, I think. 
do you see the problems in the UK, maybe Italy, and I hate to even reference Greece again, as, as solved? Or could there be more pain to come? Well, I think what's going on in the UK, we may see in many other pockets of the global economy, which is that people just thought interest rates would not go up this fast. And they you know, sold interest rate risk and took chances that they shouldn't have a lot like in 2008 when people thought home prices couldn't go down. I think in the case of Italy, I would draw a distinction where I think it is a problem, but it's really not just the speed. But I believe that at the end of this cycle, whenever it is, it could be three years from now, the interest rate is not going to come down as much as you think. I think we're going to be looking at real interest rates and forward-looking inflation-adjusted interest rates that look more like in the early 2000s than we got used to before the pandemic. Yeah, and that's I, uh, very challenging for Europe because they're, you know, as long as it's a free lunch, they can promise anything. Yeah, and, and I'm going to be perfectly transparent and honest with our viewers. I mean, I probably have a bias toward the negative because I lived through 2000, I lived through 2007, 08, 09, watching people throw Molotov cocktails into banks in Syntagma Square in Greece. So I've seen sort of how these things become political crises. We've had a little bit of stabilization the last couple of days, but I worry about the next six to 12 months, Ken. I mean, is it overstating it to say we could have more sovereign issues? Is that even, is that possible? Well, it's certainly possible. Uh, we're, you know, in some emerging markets. I think the real issue to me is that the central banks keep saying we have to bring, get inflation back to two or two and a half percent ASAP. And if we don't, inflation expectations are going to go up and that's terrible. But and we'll have a worse recession five years from now. When you talk about political, I think having a deep recession now would be very destabilizing around the world. And by the way, good luck not having inflation expectations go up in the long run. Look at somebody in the UK. They had 10% inflation reported today. The IMF's predicting almost 10% next year. Are you uh -huh. seriously telling me that's not going to get built into interest rates for a long time? No, I, I would not argue with you on that. Uh, Professor Rogoff, sit tight. We're going to come right back to you. Speaking of bond yields, we've got 20-year bonds. Don't talk about 20 years very much. They are up for auction. Let's go to Rick. Let's get the results, and then we'll come back to Ken Rogoff. Rick, how's it looking? Well, uh, the grade is D is in dog for this particular auction. We're talking about 20-year bonds, 12 billion of them. And we brought them back in May of 2020, and this is the highest yield since then, 4.395. So a half a percent under, half one percent under 3.4. But the problem was the one issued Marco's trading 4.3, 4.37 to be exact. So higher yield at the auction means a lower price for the government to sell their debt. Hence, D for dog. And if you go through the internals, the bid to cover was weak. Uh, 63.7 indirects, weakest since February. About the only glitter of hope here that kept it from uh, a D minus was that the direct bidders, like pension funds, insurance companies, were darn close to 20%. That is a solid number. And one of the biggest negatives, dealers took almost 16.5% of this auction. You don't want dealers to take 
the auction. You want the auction to be taken by investors and bidders. That was the highest amount taken by dealers uh, since January, so the first month of the year. And if you look at the chart, you can clearly see that rates popped afterwards. These are the highest rates on the curve, and sometimes many would say they're not the most liquid, so the auction isn't quite as important as a 10 or a 30, and that may be true. But no matter how yeah. you slice it, Brian, this isn't a good auction, and the last several batches of auctions have been anything but stellar. That, that is a troubling number, 16% sort of forced buying on the primary dealer side. Rick Santelli, thank you. Let's go back now to Professor Ken Rogoff. Ken, you just heard that. We saw a day a couple weeks ago in the U.K. where there was basically no demand for U.K. government debt. Is it possible we could have days here where there's no buyers for U.S. Treasuries? Well, I mean, it happened in 1998 when after the Russia crisis, the whole Treasury market froze up. You can have pockets of it. But no, it's not possible. However, it is possible buyers may want to have lower bond prices, may have higher yields. And I think we're going to continue to head that way for a very long time. And again, I think, you know, there's all this talk of the secular decline in interest rates. Uh, I think that's been way overstated. I think we had something after the financial crisis that was uh, a temporary for a long time. But it's when interest rates are going up now, obviously, the 10-year index Inflation index treasury is just way up from its floor a while ago, more than 2% up. It's not all the Fed. The reason the Fed's having to raise interest rates so much is in part because the market equilibrium and the real interest rates probably move to something more normal. At least I think that's a very serious possibility, not just now, but for the next 10 years. 10 years? Yes, yes. So Real what's what's rates. what's that? You, write another book, Ken. <laughs> you you might have to. What, what, I'm sure you are. So what's going to be the effect of that then? What what are things going to look like in a year, two years, and five years? You're talking about structural, systemic changes in basic and core finance. Well, I mean, for sure, part of the reason the stock market got so high and housing prices got so high and art prices in Bitcoin was that money was free and people were looking for alternatives. I'm not saying that the price is gonna go through the roof, but when it comes back to something more normal, there are gonna be effects. And I, I think our political system's not at all prepared for the end of the free lunch era, at least they thought it was, where if you wanna redistribute income, you have to raise some people's taxes and give it to other people instead of just handing it out. I think it's a, it's a I think I'm think they'll be we're in a turning point. And I think after the pandemic, we're not going back to this so-called world of secular stagnation is too broad. But in, in interest rates, I think we're not going back to it. That's my guess. We're going to see somewhat higher interest rates yeah. adjusted for inflation, more like what was normal before the financial crisis. And I want to be clear to our viewers, particularly the ones that are on the newer side watching financial news, CNBC. A 4.5%, 4.15% yield in the 10-year historically is still low, correct? I mean, the fact that we're calling that high is sort of ridiculous, but it's only because we were off a half a percent during the COVID sort of initial panic. So let's separate 2020 because I'll give 2020 a break. No one knew what the hell was going to happen. Everybody was in a panic. I get it. Is the bigger problem, Ken, that we kept rates too low 
for too long coming into 2021 when pretty much everyone saw that large parts of the economy were recovering nicely? Or was there some other policy mistake that is maybe more to blame for what's happening in the bond market? Oh, I mean, I don't think there's any question that uh, we kept our foot on the gas in both fiscal and monetary policy for too long. So did a lot of the rest of the world. But it's not the only thing going on. The pandemic indeed made interest rates really low again. They had actually been starting to rise, the real interest rates, uh, before. But if you look at the average level of the inflation indexed interest rate, say the years 2003 to 2006, uh, and compare it to 2012 to 2021, it's a 2% less. And that's not normal. I think I've done work with uh, colleagues, Paul Schmelzing and Barbara Rossi, looking at really long-term trends and these real interest rates. And there's a lot of movement, but nothing secular. It ends, it comes back. It, the cycles may be long, but it's more cyclical than secular. And I think we're going to see that again over the next decade. If it's not the end of the world, it's just more normal. To adjust to that normality, I understand, Ken, is normal. But I think as we tried to set up at the beginning of the interview, it's the speed at which yes. this all occurred, right? I mean, it's, it's driving through the dark, in the rain, at 100 miles <laughs> an hour with your lights off. Yeah. And now I you're mean, trying to fix it in, tw in 25 feet. So, okay, now we're narrowing in on the inflation, which is, you know, definitely high and they need to raise interest rates. And I'm even saying, you know, there's adjustments beyond comparing to what interest rates were before the pandemic. But I think the problem with doing it super fast is that there are long lags. I've been saying this for a long time. The employment effects can be a year, two years out, and there, it's very easy to overshoot. So at some point, you kind of need to slow down, you don't stop, and I'm not saying that, but the sort of continuing with 75 basis point hikes and 1% hikes, I think is, is a risky strategy. Uh, yes, it's good for your credibility. But, is it? Uh, <laughs> I think, it, I, I don't know, I don't know the answer. They're trying to restore their credibility. If you were Should Jay Powell, inflation. would you raise rates in November? Oh no, absolutely they should be raising rates. I think the question is when they kind of start slowing it down uh, I, I, and when, you know, when they need to quite raise it so vigorously. No, I, yeah. I think it, I think the rates need to go to at least five. But I think when they get to five, it's still not going to be enough. It is not going to be. We're in for stagflation. And that's a point I think they've got to start looking towards yeah. and saying we're going to slow down at that point. And it already might be too late if they raise them too fast. It might be stagnation. Ken Rogoff, Harvard. Ken, pleasure to chat with you again. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. All right. Speaking of interest rates, we've got a news alert right now with Diana Olick on mortgage rates. And it's a doozy. Diana. Brian, the average rate on the 30-year fix just hit 7.22%, according to Mortgage News Daily. That's a new 20-year high, all thanks to the route in the bond market today. Mortgage rates loosely follow the yield on the 10-year Treasury. Now, homebuilder stocks were already taking a hit. You see the builder ETF, ITB, down more than the broader markets. That's just a slew of rough housing data today. A 25-year low in weekly mortgage applications. That came out this morning, as well as a wider-than-expected drop in single-family home construction. Name 
names like Lenar, Pulte, and DR Horton all down on the news. And a report out this morning from Redfin showed home sales down 25% year over year in September and new listings also down 22% as the housing market just slows down to a crawl. We'll get the realtor data on September existing home sales tomorrow morning and it will likely not be pretty. And just one more note, we will be talking about the impact of rising interest rates on investment, on clean energy investment and on real estate coming up in our next hour on Power Lunch with legendary investor Vinod Kosla. Brian, back to you. Yeah, again, like we just talked about with Ken, Diana, it's not just where we are. It's the speed from which we went from low to 7.22%, punching home sellers and buyers in the gut. Diana, thank you very much. All right, also happening, severe drought causing the Mississippi River to recede to record low levels, adding more supply chain pain at a critical time when many parts of the economy are still under logistical and cost issues. Remember, as we tried to show you a few months ago when we were live in Davenport, the Mississippi River carries nearly 92% of our agricultural exports and an estimated 589 million tons of cargo per year. Now, the low water levels causing a backup more than 2,000 barges, leading to higher prices for other shipping methods like trucks and trains as the domino effect takes hold. From on what all this means and where we exact stand, let's welcome back in Mike Ellis, CEO of American Commercial Barge Lines, ACBL. If you remember, we were in St. Louis with Mike on one of his barges a couple of months ago. Mike, I wish I could be, th- be there now. I know you're on the Ohio, not the Mississippi, but the Ohio has also suffered. How severe are some of the water levels, particularly on the northern parts of these rivers. Hey, Brian, thank you for having us today. Yes, uh, severe. This is the most severe we've ever seen in in, in our industry uh, in recent history. So we are seeing levels that make it almost impossible to transit through certain areas of the, not only the the upper rivers, but also the lower Mississippi River, where really we're seeing the, the most difficulty. Do you have to lighten the barges i mean can barges still get through but maybe you put half the oil or half the corn or half the fertilizer on them what's the what's the status of shipping right now yeah so brian is a combination effect of of carrying less barges per per tow or per boat so instead of carrying 46 barges on a 10,000 horsepower boat we may we cut down to 25 barges and and not only are we we're less barges they're also drafting less, so we can load. We, we, we have to load them instead of you know 1,900 tons. We may be loading them to you know 1,300 tons, 1,400 tons, or you know from 12 feet, 12 and a half feet to nine and a half feet. Or today we're going down to nine feet. So it's a substantial reduction in the amount of goods we can carry on this river with the amount of horsepower that we have. Trying to put that 2,000 barges on backlog number in context, Mike, I, I, obviously you and I were together. I've, I've eyeballed the river, but I'm certainly no barge expert. Are we you no. normally at zero barges and back? Put that 2,000 number into perspective. Yeah, typically in, when the river system is, is working efficiently, we have water and we have the, the conditions that we need to, to, to run. Our barges are moving, and they're, they're, you know, they're, there'll be lock delays. There'll be uh, delays in certain areas, but those delays are just a couple of barges or a couple of tows, and so it's, it's insignificant. Uh, when you have 2,000 barges in a queue to get through the river, that's a significant impact to our supply chain, our industry. And as we talked about, you know, what fuel does to the cost of, 
of transportation, you know, you start cutting your toe sizes in half and you cut your drafts down to, to eight to nine feet, and it, is, it's, it takes your cost per ton uh, through the roof. And so, and not only that, we, we can't get the goods there. When, when it's just fuel being high, we mm. can still get the products where we need to get them. They're just more expensive. Today, we have a combination effect of, you know, the cost increasing significantly and then the fact that we just cannot move the goods that you know we need yeah. to power this country to to feed the world and and also to to build what we build in the world we move all that on these barges out here put it into perspective uh, how close are we or are we already at certain parts of the river mississippi and or ohio where you are being impassable is there a point at which you say doesn't matter how light the barge is, could be empty. We still can't get through. Right. So if you look at from Cairo, Illinois, you know, right south of where we were, Bryan and St. Louis, all the way to Vicksburg, Mississippi, we call that the, the Lower Mississippi River, and that's where we're having the most difficulties. There's probably between 10 to 20 spots, areas that are critical in during that stretch of, of waterway, 400 mile stretch that that are causing us to to stop right now it's closed so we're we're not passing but we expect to open back up here in the next couple of days and so those areas are critical you know the Corps of Engineers working with industry and the US mm -hmm. Coast Guard are out there doing everything we can we are lobbying for some additional efforts additional resources and dredges from the Corps and the, you know, the industry and, and the US Corps of Engineers and the US Coast Guard have worked well together we have to work better together, be more proactive as opposed to being reactive yeah. so that we can pass these spots because if we don't, we will continue to shut down this river and 2,000 barges are going to grow to a lot more. Well, what we need is a lot of rain. I mean, maybe hopefully not all at once because we won't be able to handle it, but we, we just need the water levels to come up. Outside of that, Mike, and I'll leave it here, um, what you referenced sort of man-made fixes, Army Corps of Engineers, what can humans do far as dredging and how long would that take? Yeah, so first of all, the, we've done had a lot of infrastructure dollars committed to this river system. So it, it is the most efficient inland river system in the world. And our, and our government are, are, has supported the infrastructure. Now we have to support the operational budget of the Corps of Engineers to dredge this river to the proper draft on a, on a proactive basis, not a reactive basis. And in the 1944 Flood Control Act, mandated the Coast Guard keep this river dredged to 12 feet and we're not doing that and the, the, the money's never been allocated to the Corps there they lack the resources we need to keep this river system and to keep our country competitive and if we don't do it we'll continue to see these type of problems going forward this is going to cripple yeah. our country in terms of the supply chain that was already weak we did not need the inland river system to shut down like it's being shut down it's amazing we're throwing tens or hundreds of billions of dollars at a lot of other things, not saying it's not justified, and we're not dredging properly the most important waterway in the U.S. and maybe one in the world. Mike Ellis, American Commercial Barge Lines. Mike, next time, I'll be there with you. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. By the way, Thank speaking, you, Brian. Appreciate it. Very welcome. All right, speaking of being on the river tomorrow, I believe it is, Jane Wells will be on the Mississippi, so you're going to get a bird's-eye view from a way that only Jane can do it. All right, coming up. Can today's results help Tesla snap its longest weekly losing streak since May? Should investors be IBM amid a corporate spending slowdown? And what clues can LAM research reveal 
about the state of semis. We're going to have the action, the story, and the trade on earnings exchange next. Waiting on President Biden in minutes. He is expected to speak on his plan to sell more oil from America's emergency stockpiles, hoping to bring down gas prices all ahead of the midterm election. Will it work or backfire? That's next. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back. Oil prices, they are on the rise today, up about two bucks a barrel. This despite the White House last night reiterating its plan to sell more oil from America's emergency reserves. The 15 million barrel sale will kick off December 1st, just days before the full European Union sanctions on Russia kick in. That's the fifth. And by the way, three days before OPEC Plus meets again in Vienna. That's on the fourth. Now, we do expect to hear from President Biden in just a few minutes. There's the empty podium. When he comes out, obviously, we will go to the president live. Joining us, though, ahead of it is Frank Maisano. He is senior principal at Bracewell and Michael Bradley, a partner at Veriton. Gentlemen, both, I want to apologize in advance uh, because if Biden walks out right now, we're going to dump out. You know how it works. You're both pros. Michael, I'm going to start with you. Will this SPR release work to lower oil prices? No, I mean, if you said it earlier, Brian, this is an extension of the 180 million barrel release that they were talking back in March. And so this is just another 15 million barrels. And so, no, that's not really going to affect the market. If you really want to affect the market, you're going to have to you know, increase refinery uh, capacity. And that's just not going to happen over the next 30, 60, 90 days. It's going to take several years. That's the biggest issue right now. That's how you bring product prices down. And right now you have product prices that, you know, historic lows prices at historic lows. Yeah. So SPR releases are, are nice, but they're not going to make a major difference. And we just got the two-minute warning, Frank, by the way. We'll see if that holds. But so, Frank, I mean, th- we've never used the SPR like this, have we? Yeah, and, you know, Brian, this is really not what its uh, use is intended for, right? It was developed in, in the, in the, out of the 73 oil embargo. Frank I, need, we- Frank, I need to go. Mike, you guys stick around because we might get your comments after the president. Can you hold? Let's go yes. to President Biden speaking at the White House. Well, uh, good afternoon. Earlier this year, because of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, the price of oil and gas increased 
dramatically. And I acted decisively at the time, and thanks in part to those actions, the price of our gas has fallen to 30 percent from the summer highs. Now it's down about a dollar and 15 cents a gallon from their peak during the summer. <clears throat> gas prices have fallen every day in the last week. Let me repeat, gas prices have come down and they continue to come down again. They're now down more than 27 cents a gallon in Wisconsin this past week, 27 cents in Oregon, 16 cents in Ohio, 25 cents in Nevada, 17 cents in, in, uh, in, in Indiana, <clears throat> in just the last 10 days. And that's progress. But they're not falling fast enough. Families are hurting. You've heard me say it before, but I get it. I come from a family. If the price of gasoline went up at the gas station, we felt it. Gas prices hit almost every family in this country, and they squeeze their family budgets. When the price of gas goes up, other expenses get cut. That's why I have been doing everything in my power to reduce gas prices since Putin's invasion of Ukraine caused these price hikes, these prices to spike and rattle international oil markets. <clears throat> Excuse me. I focused on how we can protect American families from that spike and give folks just a little bit of breathing room, as my dad would say. Today, I'm announcing three critical steps that my administration will take to reduce gas prices at the pump. First, the Department of Energy will release another 15 million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, extending our previously announced release through the month of December. Independent analysis, uh, excuse me, independent analysts have confirmed that drawdowns on the reserve so far have played a big role in bringing down oil prices, bringing them down. So we're going to continue to responsibly use that national asset. Right now, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is more than half full, with about 400 million barrels of oil. That's more than enough for any emergency drawdown. With my announcement today, we're going to continue to stabilize markets and decrease the prices at a time when the actions of other countries have caused such volatility. And I've told my team behind me here to be prepared to look further, look for further releases in the months ahead if needed. We're calling it a ready and release plan. This allows us to move quickly to prevent oil price spikes and respond to international events. Secondly, we need to responsibly increase American oil production without delaying or deferring our transition to clean energy. Let me uh, let's debunk some myths here. My administration has not stopped or slowed U.S. oil production. Quite the opposite. We're producing 12 million barrels of oil per day. And by the end of this year, we will be producing one million barrels a day, more than the day in which I took office. In fact, we're on track for record oil production in 2023. And today, the United States is the largest producer of oil and petroleum products in the world. We export more than we import. And I've still heard from oil companies, and I've heard from oil companies that they're worried that investing in additional oil production today will, will uh, in, in, case of the, in, in case demand goes down in the future, and they're not going to be able to sell their oil products at a competitive price later. Well, we have a solution for that. Today, I'm announcing a plan to refill the Strategic Petroleum Oil Reserve in the years ahead at a profit for taxpayers. The United States government is going to purchase oil to refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve.
when prices fall to $70 a barrel. <clears throat> that means oil companies can invest to ramp up production now. With confidence, they'll be able to sell their oil to us at that price in the future, $70. Refining and refilling the reserve at $70 a barrel is a good price for companies, and it's a good price for the taxpayers, and it's critical to our national security. To put it in context, since March, the average price of oil has been more than $90 a barrel, the highest since 2014. By selling from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve at the higher price of $90 earlier this year and then refilling it in the future at a lower price, around $70, will actually make money for the taxpayers, lower the price of gas, and help bolster production, all while totally consistent with my commitment to accelerate the transition to clean energy. So my message to all companies is this. You're sitting on record profits, and, you're, and we're giving you more certainty. So you can act now to increase oil production now. The third thing I'm doing is I'm calling oil companies to pass the savings on to consumers. Consider this. In the second quarter of this year, profits at six of the largest producers publicly traded oil companies were more than $70 billion. That's $70 billion in just one quarter, 90 days, $70 billion. So far, American oil companies are using that windfall, the windfall of profits, to buy back their own stock, passing that money on to their shareholders, not to consumers. In fact, in the first half of the year, those same companies spent $20 billion buying back their own stock, and most importantly, buying back a buyback, the most significant buyback in the last almost a decade. That's great if you own a lot of stock in an oil company or if you're an executive in an oil company. Puts a lot of money in your pocket. That is how you get paid. But it's not the case for the vast majority of Americans. And <clears throat> pain is the pump. Here's another thing. When the cost of oil comes down, we should see the price of the gas station at the pump come down as well. That's how it's supposed to work. But that's not what's happening. In the past two weeks, the price of oil has fallen $4 a barrel. And you think, and thanks in large part to the steps we've taken this year, the price of oil has fallen nearly $40 a barrel since mid-June. That's a 30% drop in the price of a barrel of oil. But guess what? Gas prices haven't fallen that much. And it's not right. Gas prices at the pump should be lower. In fact, if retailers and refiners were earning the average profit they've made over the last 17 years, Americans would be paying at least 60 cents less per gallon for every gallon they buy. Say that again. 60 cents less for every gallon they buy. That makes a big difference in a family. My message to the American energy companies is this. You should not be using your profits to buy back stock or for dividends. Not now. Not while a war is raging. You should be using these record-breaking profits to increase production and refining. Invest in America. For the American people. Bring down the price you charge at the pump to reflect what you pay for the product. You still make a significant profit. Your shareholders will still do very well. And the American people will catch a break they deserve and get a fair price at the pump as well. 
One more thing I want to mention today. Our country needs to pass permanent reform to accelerate the development of clean energy. Right now, the process of getting clean energy projects approved is too cumbersome and too time-consuming. So I'm asking the Congress, pass a permitting bill to speed up the approval of all kinds of energy production, from wind to solar to clean hydrogen, because we need to get this moving now, quickly, now. It would take, you know, this, if we do this, it would take historic clean energy investments that I signed into law and put them into action. In fact, one independent analysis has already estimated that the $369 billion we're making in federal investment that will generate, if we just, just that, will generate $1.7 trillion in total public and private investments in the years ahead. You can increase oil and gas production now while still moving full speed ahead to accelerate our transition to clean energy. That way, that way we can lower energy costs for American families, enhance our national security at a very difficult moment. Let me close with this. I know it's been a rough four or five years for the country. For a lot of families, things are still tough. The choices made by other countries are affecting the price of gas here at home. That's why I've been acting so aggressively. Without the steps we've taken over the past several months to ramp up production and lower prices and get relief to consumers, gas prices would be higher than they are today. And we'll keep doing everything we can to keep it going. To ensure that our energy independence and security is available, and to lower gas prices here at home, and to give folks a little bit of breathing room. We just have to remember who we are. We're the United States of America, for God's sake. There's not a single thing we can't do when we put our minds to it. And we can strengthen our energy security now, and we can build a clean energy economy for the future at the same time. It's totally within our capacity. Totally within our capacity. Gas prices are coming down. We're going to do everything we can to make sure they continue to come down and companies act responsibly so it's reflected at the pump. Thank you all, and may God bless you, and may God protect our troops. Thank you. Appreciate it. Mr. President, Mr. President, what is your response? I don't hear. Can you speak louder? <laughs> what is your response to Republicans who say you are only doing this SPR release because, to help Democrats in the midterms? Where have they been the last four months? That's my response. Is it politically motivated, sir, this no, it's not. three weeks before the midterms? Look, it makes sense. I've been doing this for how long now? It's not politically motivated at all. It's motivated to make sure that I continue to push on what I've been pushing on, and that is making sure there's enough oil that's being pumped by the companies so that we have the ability to be able to produce enough gas that we need here at home, oil we need here at home, and at the same time, keep moving in the direction of providing for alternative energy. That's what I've been doing. Now, the problem is these guys are asleep. I don't know where they've been. And they seem, you know, the price at the pump should reflect what the price of a barrel of oil costs. And it's not going down consistently. Martial law in parts of Ukraine. What does that say to you, sir, about where his thinking is on the war in Ukraine right now. 
I think that Vladimir Putin finds himself in an incredibly difficult position. And what it reflects to me is it seems his only tool available to him is to brutalize individual citizens in Ukraine, Ukrainian citizens, to try to intimidate them into capitulating. They're not going to do that. Thank you. Sir, do you, sir, do you want to ban the export of U.S. petroleum products? All right, welcome back. That was President Biden talking about the plan to release more, which is just the continuation of the previous plan, 15 million barrels, also coming out and calling on American oil companies to use some of their profits to not buy back stock, but to drill more oil as well. Also making the connection between why the price of oil has come down, but the price of gasoline has not come down nearly as much. You saw Energy Special Advisor Amos Hochstein, uh, who we have interviewed many times, standing behind the president, along with Brian Deese. There is a lot to unpack here. Our guests, Frank Maisano and Michael Bradley, are still with us instead. Um, Frank, I know we had to cut you off, so I apologize. I am I'm trying to figure out where to start in all of this, because with with absolute respect for the office of the presidency of the United States, uh, a lot of what we heard was maybe disconnected from the markets. Where do you want to begin on, on the, because just, because the price start. of oil is only about half the price of a gallon of gas. There's a lot of other things that go into it. Yeah. Um, where do you want to start with this? It reflects a little bit of their misunderstanding of oil markets, one. But, to, but really, let's get back to the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. It's not ever been intended to be used for political purposes. It's used for hurricanes. It's used for cyber attacks. It's used for emergency situations. Um, it, it has been going uh, this way since March. Uh, and, you know, it's really been used for political purposes since March, right? We, we really cleared the Ukraine challenges with the gas price that went up and then back down quickly early on. And then since then, this has been all about the price of gas um, with regular supply and demand related issues, right? So um, so this is political. It, it, there's no doubt that it's political. And uh, again, the mixed signals this administration continues to send on leases, on shutting down the Keystone Pipeline, yeah. on wanting more gas now. You know, again, the, the industry is continuing, their head continues to spin. I'm, you know, Michael, I, I get a little passionate about it because my, my dad owned a gas station when I was growing up as a kid. I mean, that was it. That was our family. And my mom was a telephone operator. My dad owned a gas station in La Habra, California during the gas crunch. So I know how gasoline stations make money. And I guess one of the things that worried me about the comments was that he's going to make people angry at the local gas station owner, which, by the way, is, is generally like mom and pop, if not a first generation immigrant to the United States. They own a lot of gas stations across the United States. It's a great way to start a small business. Um, talk to us about how the, the pricing mechanism actually works, as much as you know. Brian, you know I've talked to you many, many times, and I've asked you, what is, what is the value of crude oil? And the value of crude oil is zero. The value of crude oil is, is the refined products that come from it. And so that's the issue. We do not have enough capacity right now and that's why prices are high. That's why inventories are low. And so you can jigger all you want with the SPR. You can produce more oil, but it really boils down to, do you have the capacity to produce that product? And that's why there is a disconnect between oil coming down $40 and the price is not coming down as much. It's just that simple. 
Yeah, and the futures market, what we show our viewers on CNBC, that price chart of oil that we show them, that has become slightly disconnected from the physical market, right, Mike? If I want to actually give you a barrel of oil, the price I see on the screen may not be the price I sell it to you at, in part because of the sale of the SPR disrupting parts of the futures market, correct? That's right. That's right. You know, one of the other things that, you know, is interesting to me, Brian, too, is just the president talked about, you know, U.S. producers needing to do their nationalistic duties and, and basically start producing more. I would basically tell you that, you know, U.S. producers and oil majors are not an extension of the U.S. government. Yes, they want to basically produce as much as they possibly can, but guess what? They're run by their shareholders, and some of their biggest shareholders are the most biggest ESG component, you know, proponents out there, and those guys are not telling them to produce more. They're telling them to maximize profit, give the capital back to them, and so the Biden administration really wants something done. They should approach those largest shareholders because right now, they do not want them to drill, and they definitely are not going to want them to drill at $70 oil. Well, Frank, do you agree with that? Because, I mean, the president says we are not let, – let's – I'm going to try to quote the president directly. Let's debunk some myths. We are not discouraging production of oil. Well, for, you know, for, since the beginning of this administration, they've, they've, had, they've sent mixed signals on that. Sometimes they're for drilling. Sometimes they're not for drilling. And, you know, they've, they've played around with lease – sales and they've done all kinds of different things. Um, so, you know, they've really sent mixed signals on that all along. Secondly, we forget that these companies lost billions and billions of dollars in 2021, 20 and 2020. Uh, and, you know, it's hard to it's it, that has to come into play when you're thinking about what shareholders are doing right now. Some of these companies have been told to effectively in Europe and particularly the BPs and the shells. I'm not going to say they've been told to wind down. But they're winding down huge parts of their fossil fuel industry in the United States. We've been told years ago, a couple years ago, we need to phase out fossil fuels. If I ran an oil company and I believe that we need to phase out fossil fuels, why would I reinvest money into a project, Mike? I'm just going to give eventually give all the money back to shareholders and shut the company down in 20 years. I'm not exaggerating. But now we're saying use the money to make new projects. But why would you make a new project, which, by the way, will take 10 to 15 years to pay out if you don't think you may be around in 10 to 15 years? That's, I guess, I think what I hear, it's not Brian Sullivan's opinion, Mike. This is what I hear from guys like you, the CEOs of these oil companies, oil investors. Is that, is that accurate? Why make the investment if you think you're going to be wound down anyway? No, Brian, that's a great point. And in it, if we're going to take anything positive away from this news conference that just happened is that Biden said, you know, we need to start basically lowering permitting, speeding up permitting. I think that's a great thing. The problem is you can't do it just for the renewables industry, the solar industry. You have to extend that to the basically oil and gas industry. Unless you do that, we're not going to get away from this problem. And so that's what I did not hear. And that's what I would have loved to have heard. Right. And, and he's going to run into yeah. a larger problem with his activist base, Brian. They don't want that permitting reform. And that's what we saw earlier this year when Joe Manchin uh, kind of formed this deal. You've had lots of progressives, including Bernie Sanders and led, yeah. uh, led in the Senate, others in the House. They, have want, they want no part of permitting reform, even if it means getting more renewables online. And I can tell you from building renewables projects, uh, solar projects in California, wind projects off the coasts, wind projects in the mid-Atlantic, you know, we've had people fighting those projects for years and years. So permitting yeah. reform is essential. 
And it has it to is. happen. And it has and, to happen across the board. Yeah, we got to go. We had to go five minutes ago. But yeah, this permitting thing, people viewed it as a victory against fossil fuels. It could severely damage solar, wind, and other projects, which need assurances they can get infrastructure and lines built. Otherwise, they won't fund it. Frank Mezzano, Michael Bradley, a, a good discussion. I think a lot more to be had. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. By the way, the price of oil on the rise right after that as well. Listen, difficult job trying to thread the needle saying we need more oil, but we also need more renewables. We're back right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, well, welcome back. It is time now for Earnings Exchange. Today, we've got the action, the story, and the trade on Tesla. Kind of ironic because we just talked about gas prices. Also, IBM and Lamb Research. First up, Tesla shares down 29% the past month. The EV maker faces difficulties with demand. It missed on deliveries, reporting 15,000 fewer than expected. Oh, and this guy, Elon Musk, has been front and center in the drama surrounding his pending Twitter deal. Let's bring in Phil LeBeau with the story. And Matt Maley joins us with the trade. Matt with Miller Tabak first. Phil, set it up. Well, I think what people are going to be focused on when the numbers come out after the bell is, first of all, not just the top and the bottom line, but it's the numbers within the numbers. Automotive gross margins, they're expected to come in, I think, 28.5% is the consensus. Is it there? Is it even perhaps a little bit higher than that? That could give a boost to the stock. And then what's going on with the gigafactory production overall, specifically Shanghai, which is the big enchilada, and then you've got Texas and Berlin, which are also ramping up uh, production. And that also feeds into the discussion about demand and what they're seeing, not only in the fourth quarter, but potentially beyond that. I don't think they're going to give us guidance for next year, but I do think that whatever commentary Elon Musk has about the market strength overall, that's going to get a lot of attention. Though, let's be clear, Brian, he almost always says the same thing. So there's great demand, great demand for our Tesla vehicles. We need something a little more tangible than just great demand. No, we'll see. Six buck a gallon gas in California. They're, they're going to have great demand. Matt Maley, what's the trade on Tesla? Maybe one of the, if not the most important stocks in the world, given all the options activity tied to it. Yeah, well, Brian, there's no question the stock has, you know, been beaten up uh, lately. And, uh, you know, you we're talking about uh, demand. I mean, one of the things I think a lot of people will be asking about is what's the demand in China? Because there's some stories about the demand starting to shrink there. Whether Elon Musk answers that question or not will, will be interesting. But the one thing on on a on a technical basis, you know, the stock is getting oversold. And if you look at the chart, it's it's what we call a descending triangle pattern. And uh, but it's made a kind of little bit of a double bottom down here, just above 200. If this uh, um, if this this news is not good enough to get the stock to bounce a little bit here, and we break below 200, it's going down to that $170 uh, level that I think Tony Saganagi was talking about earlier this week. But if we get any kind of a, a, a good news, I mean, there's a lot of shorts in this name, a lot of put sell, uh, put buyers. Uh, this thing bounces. It's going to bounce like a rocket ship. So uh, we're at a key technical level. But I think with the demand issue and heading into a recession uh, on a longer term basis, we are going to eventually hit, uh, hit, uh, fall below $200 before we see the ultimate bottom in this one. How high are the expectations, Phil, going into tonight? Don't say great demand. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, look, I think they're high, but 
But at the same point, uh, Brian, everybody knows that they're going to have strong numbers for the third quarter, probably near record profits, probably record profits. You've got the pricing and you obviously have the production that is there. The, the, the real question becomes, how much can you look into the future and say, I, I'm pretty confident that we're going to see X, Y, and Z in terms of production and where the gigafactories are? All right, finally, let's talk about LAM Research. The names continue to struggle. All the semiconductor stocks do. Slowing demand, macro headwinds. LAM Research share is not spared. Down big this year. Christina Partsinevelis, what can you tell us here? Well, let's start with the fact that LAM makes wafer fab equipment, and it actually faces two major hurdles ahead of earnings. Firstly, you got memory weakness, which is across the board. Memory chip maker Micron cutting capital expenditures by 50% in its latest earnings report for 2023. You also have chip maker TSMC also announcing a 10% cut to CapEx for 2022. So that means less money spent on machines that builds the chips, hitting LAM's revenues. The second major hurdle is the export restrictions to China. LAM has higher than industry average exposure to the memory market and actually sells chips to Chinese chipmaker YMTC. But about just a, a week ago, LAM said it has stopped supplying that particular company uh, and stopped supplying the equipment needed to make those super high artificial intelligence chips in China. However, LAM can continue to sell equipment to other corporations that are based in China like Samsung, TSMC, SK Hynix for the next year without a license. That's when we could see the impact a year from now if they don't get the license. An applied materials warning, these rules could mean a $400 million hit to revenue. So what will Lamb say after the bell today? Matt, what do you think? What do you want to hear? What do you need to hear? Well, I mean, we, we want to hear uh, something about their, uh, you know, their margins. The margins have been holding up pretty well. If they can continue to, to do that, it might be able to help the stock. I mean, one of the things we do have to realize is that you go out in the last decade, the stock has only been this cheap one other time. Uh, we're trading below 10 times forward earnings, and that was just before the Fed pivoted in late 2018. Uh, the stock is also getting oversold. And let's face it, I mean, how much bad news can we possibly get in, this, in, in, in the whole sector? So uh, a lot of bad news is out there. We could get a short-term bounce if you get yep. any kind of good news uh, in the name. Matt and Christina, thank you very much. Folks, thank you all very much. Tonight in Fast Money, Power Lunch starts right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.